Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the counterculture of the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, particularly in California. My guest is Peter Coyote. He is the author of Sleeping Where I Fall, a chronicle, The Rain Man's Third Cure, an irregular education, and most recently, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet the Buddha, Masks, Meditation, and Improvised Play to Induce Liberated States. He's also written a book of poetry called Tongue of a Crow. You're probably familiar with Peter's career as a movie actor. He's been in Aaron Brockovich, E.T., The Extraterrestrial, and over a hundred films. But you may not know that he is also an ordained Zen Buddhist priest. Peter lives in Sebastopol, California, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Peter. It's a real pleasure to be with you today. Thank you, Jeff. When we think about the counterculture, you've been through so many different aspects of it. It does strike me that a good place to start would be the San Francisco Mime Troupe back in the 1960s. They were very iconic. And I might mention parenthetically, I first met my wife at a performance of the Mime Troupe. It would have been after you had left in 1972. Sure. Well, I should tell people that there's a big difference between <clears throat> mime, which is kind of the art of Charlie Chaplin, and pantomime, which is the art of Marcel Marceau, where you create the illusion of objects in space. You make a glass wall or you lift a heavy bucket. The mime troupe used language. We used props because we were a theater of ideas. And what we did was we took 17th century Italian Commedia dell'arte, which was street theater with stock characters. Many were masked. You had the amorous maid servant. You had the lover. You had the blowhard doctor. You had Pantalone the miser. And we repurposed them to talk about contemporary issues, war, race, what have you. And the troupe was wildly popular. We were kind of the darlings of the left because we took our shows out into the parks where the people actually were. And then we had one very radical and rather dangerous show called The Minstrel Show, which was uh, a takeoff on an old-fashioned racist minstrel show. We had three white actors, three black actors in blackface makeup, sky blue tuxedos, white gloves, Afro haircuts, uh, wigs actually. And uh, we had a Marlboro Man handsome interlocutor. And the show, the show started uh, with a bunch of old darky jokes and singing and tambourines and stuff. And about 10 minutes in, the minstrels tied up the interlocutor and they took the show over and they began writing Nego History Week. And all of those politics came straight from the uh, autobiography of Malcolm X. I was the director of the road company. I made everyone read it. And uh, 
when we crossed the country with that show, uh, Harry Belafonte and Nipsey Russell, I don't know if you know who Nipsey Russell is, but he was a very famous black comic. And Harry Belafonte, you'll know, they came to our studio once and they saw this show and they just fell out of their chairs laughing. They loved it. And they called Dick Gregory in New York, who was an iconic black comedian and intellectual and deep thinker. And he invited us to New York. So we toured the country. We were arrested many, many times. Schools would think they were getting an old fashioned minstrel show. And the first time the word motherfucker hit the stage, they would cut the lights or they would throw shoes or we were arrested in Denver for uh, performing lewd and obscene acts. And uh, that show, I'll tell you, if, if I think today of going on a college campus in blackface makeup and passing out flyers to the black football players, I think I'd be scared to death. I mean, I don't think I could do it. But at the time, there was, you know, there'd usually be black guys with me and we'd get the benefit of the doubt. And then as soon as they saw the show and understood how progressive and radical it was, uh, they went for it. And then from that, at a certain point, Emmett Grogan and and, uh, Billy Murcott came out from New York and they sort of pushed us. Emmett was an actor. He joined the mime troupe, but he pushed us. He felt that we could go farther. We could push harder for change, that there was something a little too safe about owning the stage. Even though there would be accidents, drunks would get on the stage. We'd have to improvise and dance them off. Um, it was it was safe and it wasn't changing any of the social parameters. So we formed this group called the Diggers which was named after uh, a 17th century group started by a man named Gerard Wynne Stanley. And it happened when the English king, I think it might have been Charles VI, took over the public commons, knocked everybody's sheep and cattle off the public commons so he could raise his sheep for his new woolen mills. And when the people uh, protested, the king sent Cromwell and soldiers against them. And they were called the diggers because every morning they were burying their dead. And they were the first people that came out and took a stand against private property. So at this time, let's say 65, early 60s, most of the progressive models were socialist or communist. They were very ideological. I mean, I would be in agreement with a lot of their programs and policies today, but we were artists and we didn't want to be put in the position of artists in communist countries where we'd be having to do plays about heroic elevator operators or heroic bus drivers. We wanted a culture where we could be authentically who we were. So we tasked ourselves with imagining it and then making it real by acting it out. So the first thing we did was we wanted to show that the city of San Francisco was being deficit in attending to all the hundreds of thousands of kids who were coming from all over the country because the media was having a field day with the emergent culture of hate street and the counterculture and kids in Omaha and, you know, and Chillicothe and all over the country were reading about it and coming out there. 
and tourist businesses were starting. They'd send Greyhound buses down 8th Street to look at us like we were orangutans. And we would spray paint the bus windows or the camera lenses. But the city was doing nothing to help these kids. There were no shelters. There was no food. There was nothing. So we decided to feed them. So we sent our women to the uh, to the farmers markets because they were run by old Italian men and they wouldn't give a, a, a they wouldn't give a young white boy anything. But if a mother showed up with a babe in arms, they'd give her whatever she needed. So we collected enough food to feed 600 people a day. And we made these big stews in steel milk cans, you know, 25 gallon milk cans. And we just told people, bring a fork, bring a spoon and a bowl. And all they had to do to get it was to step through a yellow rectangle that we built, six feet by six feet, painted yellow, and it was called the free frame of reference. And so there was a symbolic stepping through that. And on the other side, you were living in a world where everything was free. And some people would say, uh, oh, no, I'm not going to take any food. I can afford to buy my food. And the response would be, wouldn't you like to live in a world with free food? So we went from that. Then we opened a free store. And the first iterations were just like junk piles of stuff. But the third iteration was a beautiful storefront on Cole and Carl Street, had counters, it had glass windows all around. And we collected furniture, clothing, tools, books, televisions, radios, all things being given away or put on the street for the junk man. We made sure they were all working. We hung clothes in racks and the free store was open. And the underlying uh, theater of the free store was a kind of message like, why do you want to get a job and become an employee so you can make the money to become a consumer? We'll give you the shit. Now, what do you want to do with your life? And so not only were the goods in the, in the store free, but so were the roles. So somebody would come in and say, who's in charge here? And we'd say, you are. And if they just, you know, dropped their jaw and looked stupid, there was no sense blaming the pigs or the man or the system or capitalism. You'd been offered a gift, the opportunity to make your world the way you wanted it, and you didn't jump to it. You could say, oh, really? Okay, well, I hate the way this is done or I hate the way that's done. And we would all remake it. We would, for instance, every day set up a table right in the gravel border of the freeway at rush hour traffic. We'd set up a table with a white tablecloth, four place settings, nice glasses, nice coffee, nice top cups, orange juice. And there would be two of us sitting there reading the paper, 10 inches from rush hour traffic. And there were two chairs that were empty that anyone could have stepped out of their car and started a new life. We would take a flatbed truck down through the financial district, district Montgomery Street, around four o'clock. We had bare-breasted belly dancers and conga drummers and people drinking wine and just offering people to step up. Come on, you can get in the truck. Come on, come on, come on. So everything was about being who you wanted to be and making it real by acting it out. And in terms of the rest of the counterculture, the diggers were pretty unanimously given credit 
for pushing the boundaries farther than everyone else. I mean, a hit, we used to call them the hip merchants, hate independent proprietors. They were basically taking their father's 18 inches of counter and they were just changing the products in it. You know, instead of shoes and girdles and socks, it was hash pipes and saris and love beads and this and that. The style was different, but not the relationship between owner and customer, client and patron. So we did that for, I don't know, almost three years. And then it began to pall. I, I didn't think that my uh, highest aspiration was to run a soup kitchen. So we began establishing communes. We were living communally anyway in the city. It was the only way we could afford rent because we had no money. Um, if there were maybe one woman, one pregnant woman or one woman with a child in the household, she could get aid to mothers with dependent children. And that would be just about enough for the rent. And then we had to hustle everything. And at that time, you could go out to the Safeways and every day the Safeways would put out food that was ripe that day, but too ripe to go on the shelves. And they weren't yet selling it to pig farmers. And you could live that way. I mean, I lived for 10 years on less than $2,500 a year. So we then moved out to the country and we began trying to learn how to re-inhabit a place, how to mimic the knowledge of Native Americans and learn how to live in harmony with the place that we were living. And in my case, I made friends with a lot of Natives because I realized they were the encyclopedias of this place. They had 8,000 years of wisdom of living in place. They knew every plant and animal and what it was good for. Um, the, the problem, I'm just going to take you to the end of that cycle now. And the problem with it was we didn't own the land basis. We were renting. And in many cases, people realized they could get higher rents and they kicked us off. In other cases, children came into the into the world and that required reordering of our living conditions. Uh, the diggers motto was do your thing, <laughs> you know, do whatever you want. But you couldn't have Wino Eddie playing the Tom Toms at four in the morning when mothers were waking up at five to nurse and feed the babies. So what happened was certain kind of orders had to be placed that drove out a lot of the craziest and most anarchic people. And then a lot of the parents eventually had to move closer to schools. So most of the communes broke up, although our relationships did not break up. It's not like people were wholesale uh, abandoning their values. Even today, there's a we have a group called the Free Family Union because eventually the diggers merged with the Oakland Free Bakery, with New York's up against the motherfuckers, with uh, the gypsy truckers, and we created the Free Family. And we have 108 people giving money every month to support 14 or 15 of our friends that got old and are indigent, and maybe all they have is a little social security, and we give them an extra $200 a month by chipping in. So the values are the same. They were older and grayer, maybe a little fatter, but we're still trying our best to live uh, a human-oriented existence in the midst of unregulated capitalism. I believe it was at this time you also started using heroin. And as I recall from your book, it was more or less a form of social protest. 
Well, that was the cover. <laughs> so here's the intellectual dilemma. This was true, but I, I, can't, I can't say that I was just taking heroin just because uh, of this. But if you're imagining a future, the thought has to come to you at some time. Jesus, am I really imagining something new? Or am I, have they already colonized my mind and I'm just in an area they've left free for me to play around in? Am I in some kind of loony bin kindergarten? Um, you know, it seemed, it seemed uh, consistent to us that the sudden, uh, the sudden universal emergence of LSD and guys like Timothy Leary running around free, urging everybody to take it in, in what I thought was an irresponsible way, uh, made it possible to think that the government could be wanting to study the effects of this drug. And in fact, the CIA had an MK Ultra plan where they were studying LSD and giving it to people. So one of the things was if you took a drug that was absolutely prohibited, like speed or cocaine or heroin, you could maybe be sure uh, that you were in forbidden territory. You were in free territory. So that's the party line on it. And that may have been what I told myself. But the truth of it is, is that all addicts are covering up intolerable thoughts and feelings. And however they rationalize it, however, whatever they say, that's what it is. And whether it leads you to heroin or compulsive sex or compulsive shopping or compulsive gambling or compulsive accumulation of wealth, a thought starts to rise and before it can even become conscious, you begin ritualized behaviors. You know, a spoon, cotton, getting some dope, getting high. So what we didn't understand was the consequences that would have on our bodies. <clears throat> Between 1965 and 1975, I buried 18 of my close friends uh, who died of overdoses or maybe they were arrested by the police and swallowed a bag of dope to hide the evidence. Um, so and then from that, I had hepatitis C for 45 years. So um, I don't want to suggest that uh, <laughs> heroin should be any kind of social protest because any social protest that involves self-destruction is a very short-term gain. That's a good point. During the time you were involved with the diggers, you had two visitors that I thought were really unique and interesting. One was your father, who happened to be a an investment banker or ran a financial house in New York. And another was the Native American shaman, Rolling Thunder. Two very different people who came to see you in those years. So Rolling Thunder, I met in the hate. Rolling Thunder came to the hate and he had had a vision where he believed that the diggers were the reincarnation of Indians killed in the Battle of Little Bighorn, the battle with General Custer. And I thought it was bullshit, but I thought it was good bullshit. <clears throat> and I thought he was interesting. And I became friends with him, and we developed a lot of trust. 
And he would, you know, people would call on him to doctor and then he'd come to my house and complain and say, don't they know they're supposed to give an Indian doctor some gifts? How do they think I get out here? What am I? So he would come to Olima and stay at Olima. <clears throat> well, when I first got to Olima, I was bedridden for three weeks. I had, I mean, three months. I had very, very serious uh, hepatitis, regular hepatitis. And Rolling Thunder came into my room. He knew me by then. And he said, uh, there's a dead rattlesnake in here. I said, no, there isn't. He said, yes, there is. And he began looking around the room and he jerked my closet open. And I had a rattlesnake skin as a headband on my hat, a rattlesnake that I'd killed and eaten camping out in the desert. And he grabbed my arm and he looked at the puncture marks on my arm and he said, that's where it bit you. And then he doctored me for months. He gave me the most noxious tea, bitterroot tea that would make me sweat over my entire body. And this guy had real power. We had a guy living with us named Kevin. We just called him Crazy Kevin. And he lived in a room off the kitchen and he nailed shut the door from the room to the kitchen. And he got in and out of his room through a ladder because his window was on the downside of a hill. He would come in through, through a ladder and he cut a little rectangle out of the bottom of the door where he would pass out folded newspapers that he had crapped in for us to get rid of. And at night, he would wander the house with an ax and he'd stay outside my door and he'd say, Dr. Death, I'm here for you, Dr. Death. Come and meet me, Dr. Death. And everybody was scared to death. And I was sort of first among equals because I'd gotten there first. I'd colonized the place. And everybody wanted me to get rid of him. And I wouldn't get rid of him. I said, hey, if he wound up at Olima, he has no place to go. So this is just a part of the world we're going to have to deal with. So I called Rolling Thunder. And rolling and I called Rolling Thunder when spontaneous fires started breaking out on the roofs of the chicken house and the barn. And I'm not kidding. We'd be sitting out having a cigarette and all of a sudden smoke would start coming out of the roof of the chicken coop. Kevin was in his room. Anyway, we called Rolling Thunder and Rolling Thunder did what they call a sucking cure on him. He laid him on his back. And he propped his arm up so that it flexed his shoulder blade. And in the space, in the dip of his shoulder blade, he would get down there and suck and suck and suck and then spit this noxious green crap into a, a one pound coffee can. And he filled half of it with something. It was not something he stored in his mouth. And Kevin slept for 24 hours. And when he woke up, he was completely normal. And about a month later, he left. And I would say, so that would have been 69. So I would say almost 20 years later, I was studying Zen and I went to my Zen teacher in Hawaii, whose name was Robert Aitken. And I was going to sit a session, a seven day session, where you meditate all day for seven days. And I sat down next to Kevin. And there he was, bright and bushy-tailed and normal, happy guy. So Rolling Thunder, I went to Rolling Thunder, and Rolling Thunder is responsible for me changing my name. 
So I went to his house and I did a lot of chores for him. I lived there and I fixed his cars and fixed the toilet. And I went in and I had to punch my way out of a cult commune with his son and take him out, uh, rescue his son. And we would work. And one night we were having a smoke and I told him about this incident that had happened about eight years earlier when I was in college. We ordered a bunch of peyote from Moore's Orchid Farm. Got a big box, about this big and about 12 inches wide and about eight inches high, filled with peyote buttons. And we didn't really know what to do. And uh, we went to the library. That's what college kids do. And we discovered that there was an Indian reservation near my school, the Tama Indians, and that there was a peyote cult there. So I was already pretty used to hustling weed and even a little heroin sometimes. And uh, we went over to the Tama Indian Reservation. I found a guy and I traded him half the buttons and he told us how to prepare them, how to take the cotton stuff out and how to eat them. So about five or six of us gathered in a friend's room that night. And we ate enormous amounts of peyote. We didn't know. It's like eating the moss at the bottom of a pond, honestly. Um, nothing seemed to be happening. So my friend Terry Bisson uh, stood up. He said, well, I'm going back to my room. Hey, he said, my hands are dizzy. And as soon as he said that, it was like everybody was high as a kite. <clears throat> so I stepped up and I went outside with him and I said, Terry, this is really weird, man. I, I feel like some kind of little wolf. I'm telling you, it's, I don't, I just got to run around. I'll see you. And I dog trotted through the Iowa night for the entire night. <laughs> and I woke up in the morning in a cornfield, muddy cornfield, sort of high. And the, the mud was full of these little prints. I don't know if you can see it. There you go. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, that's a coyote footprint. And I didn't know if I had made them or coyotes had made them first. I had no idea. And I forgot about it. I was 22 then. So let's say it was six years later that I was back at Rolling Thunders. And I told him this story and he said, well, what are you going to do about it? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the universe opened its mind to you. He said, you have two choices. You could treat it like a hallucination. Forget about it. It's okay. You'll grow up to be a white man. It's okay. He said, or you could try to understand it, realize that it's a precious gift and work on it. And you might grow up to be a human being. And I liked, I liked the sound of that. So I thought I'd try the human being. So I thought about it for about three months. And I changed my name as the first step in trying to honor this vision. So, you know, I was 28. I'm 80 now. That's how long I've been coyote. And there was an immediate benefit that I had never anticipated, which was that nobody had the faintest idea who Peter Coyote was, even me. And so suddenly I was kind of liberated from all my personal history and I could discover who I was by what I did. And it turned out to be a priceless gift and it turned out to be very uh, resonant and consonant with Zen practice many, many years later. 
Um, so that's the Rolling Thunder story. Now, you want to hear about my dad? I'm very interested in your father because you came from a very privileged background. And, and then to become a digger, it's like the two extremes. Well, there's a logic to it. So my dad was an extraordinary man. He was a wonderful man. He was a terrible father. Uh, he was very brilliant. He went to MIT when he was 15 years old. Uh, he had a he had a, a really a powerful mind. He played chess every week with world grandmaster Edward Lasker, and the two of them in the 1950s abandoned chess and took up the Japanese game of Go, a very subtle board game. And my dad was the first Caucasian man appointed Shodan, which is beginner of a professional level. And eight or 10 Japanese guys came to my house in kimonos and I have his fan and I have, you know, the scroll they gave. But he was he was very, very violent. He was the sparring partner of Philadelphia Jack O'Brien, the world light heavyweight champion who used to fight any weight. And he was a black belt in, in uh, jujitsu. And he was afraid, I think, that I was weak and that I was going to be eaten by the world. Uh, he didn't understand that I was left-handed. He's right-handed, meaning he was left-brained. I'm right-brained, completely different. Right brain is the sight of hearing, where you hear multiple things at once. You hear me talking, you hear this, you got... It's surround, it's, uh, what do they call it? Uh, analog. The left brain, which controls uh, the right side of the body, is where sight is located. And so if you focus on your finger, you'll see that everything else is out of focus. So the left brain is where logic, mathematics, reasoning, all those kind of digital one at a time processes are located. So he just didn't understand this poetic little spacey kid. And I think he just picked a wrong strategy for me, which was try to toughen me up. But he was very, very unstable. I mean, he would come home every day. It was like someone rolled a hand grenade into the house and everybody would be watching to see if the pin was in it. And yet, for many years, up until 1962, the Cuban Missile Crisis, everything he touched turned to money. He had his own stock brokerage house. He was the president of an oil company, Phoenix Campbell Oil Company. He was the president of the Hudson Manhattan Railroad. He was uh, the banker of a museum quality American and English colonial furniture place. And he was the, the importer of a very extraordinary breed of French cows called Charolais cattle. And he and his partner in Texas made more money from these cattle than they did off, uh, off the brokerage. And these cattle were so extraordinary. They were born at 100 pounds. They'd grow 100 pounds a month on grass. And you'd get bulls that were 3,000 pounds and heifers that were 2,800. They served beef de Charolais at the inaugura at the coronation of Queen Elizabeth. And they were made illegal. The Hereford and Angus lobbies blocked them. So my dad and his partner painted black spots on them, like Holstein's, and ran them across the Rio Grande. <clears throat> So he was an amazing guy, but I was very estranged from him. I thought my name was shit for brains until I was 16 years old. And he's just, 
was just too formidable, too angry. I just couldn't spend time with him. So I was very, very surprised when during one of the great storms of 1969, I mean, deluges, this gray Chevy pulled up in this muddy at the end of a mile and a half dirt road. We're living in a house without electricity, a five gallon kerosene powered hot water heater, 25 people in outbuildings, in barns, in sheds. The Hells Angels were visiting and I see my dad get out of the car with, and my mom, and he's carrying a case of scotch, and he's got a bottle of a thousand seconds, which are barbiturates in his hand. And they come to visit. And again, I didn't know whether to shit or go blind, really. We're all stuck inside. Everybody's steamy and wet. My mom's on the floor. She's like a woman out of a 1940s uh, film noir. You know, people would pass her joint. She'd go, no, darling, I have my Viceroy. Thank you. And my dad would be at the kitchen table punching holes in seconds, which the Hells Angels call uh, uh, aggression. Here, you need some aggression. And they're asking him, like, why he does that. And he's saying, because when I want him to work, I want him to work in a hurry. And they're past too close to him. He's calling them faggots. And I think I'm going to die. I'm going to have to support my dad. Anyway, it's a very stressful day. So about 11 o'clock at night, everybody's passed out. The two Hells Angels are passed out on either side of him. He's in his cups. He's drinking and stoned on barbiturates. And I just go to sit in the kitchen and he, he lifts up his head and he looks at me and he says, son, you're a better man than I am. And I was just stunned. I mean, I didn't get compliments like that ever. <clears throat> so I said, what do you mean? He, and he waved his arm at the commune. And I said, Dad, this isn't a dress rehearsal. I mean, we're trying, you know, but we have no money. Uh, we're doing the best we can. He said, I know, I know. And I stopped the horse shit. He said, you share what you have and you take care of each other. So he saw it. And I said, well, how about a little advice, man? I could, I could use some help. He said, okay. And he passed out. So I just sat there and then he woke up and this is what he said, almost verbatim. He said, capitalism is dying of its internal contradictions and I ought to know I'm one of them. And let me tell you that none of the sons of bitches running this give a shit about you or their own children or their grandchildren. They've paid their dues and they want theirs out of it. And pretty soon they're going to start selling off everything that's not nailed down. So you think there's going to be a revolution in five years. It's going to take 50 years. These are huge historical forces at work. Keep your head down or they'll crush you. Take care of your wife and children and your friends and do what you have to do to survive. But don't be foolish. These are the most violent people on earth. I've never seen anything to contradict what he said. And now we're talking 50 years later. So the uh, yeah. if your father was a prophet, this is the time for the prophecy to be fulfilled. This is it. And, and what are we seeing? We're seeing in broad daylight, people are disassembling the democracy. 
They are electing secretaries of state who are claiming for themselves the power to choose the electors from the from the electoral college, not honor the ones the people chose. And all this voter suppression stuff is really the red blanket that you wave in front of a bull to distract it from the sword. The sword is they're undermining the democratic process, which means to me that the richest people in the United States have made the decision that they intend to die with all their toys and privileges intact. And, you know, after them, the deluge. Um, This wouldn't be happening without money. The New Yorker had a big article called The Big Money Behind the Big Lie. And it turns out that all these protests that are being videoed and shipped around the country are being paid for by the Koch brothers and the Coors and the Richard Scaife Mellons and the billionaires that basically want to skim the cream and leave us with the skimmed milk. This is a very interesting political discussion, but I want to go back to another very important influence in your life at this time, the poet Gary Snyder. When I was young and in my teens, I had a lot of dissatisfaction with the way the world was going. It didn't seem to have a place for people like me. If you weren't good at science and math or you weren't interested in football or sports or in getting rich particularly or powerful, who were you? What was there to do? So I started reading the Beatniks. And in the Beatniks, I found um, adult critics of the culture that were spelling out precisely what was wrong and why. And from them, I got other books to read. And then I started, uh, at the same time, I started playing folk music, playing the guitar. And you'd go out to Greenwich Village and go to the Hootenannies and you'd meet older Bohemians who'd been out there a long time. And you'd learn about people like Kropotkin and Murray Bookchin, and you'd read critiques of the United States and you'd sort of understand where the racism was coming from, where what unregulated capitalism was doing. I mean, the truth of it is, is that any political economic system could work if it was operated with kindness and self-restraint. Communism could work if you ran it that way, but nothing will work without rules. And unregulated capitalism is as destructive as it is productive of wealth among a very, very few that have certain talents. So when I was reading about the Beats, I came into Gary Snyder's name, who was kind of first among equals. Um, And by the time I was in The Hate, Gary was publishing broadsides on the environment, on ecology. We were reading his poems. Uh, in, In college, I was part of the Black Turtleneck Sweater camel cigarette crowd of writers. And our Bible was a book called uh, Modern American Poetry, 1945 to 1960, um, which was a survey of modern poetry. And that's what brought me out to California. I was going to get a master's in creative writing. So while I was out in the counterculture, I made friends with Lou Welch, who was one of the beat poets and a really close friend of Gary Snyder's. And and others, Lenore Candell, who used to go out with him, Diane DePrima, uh, Jim Kohler, Philip Whalen, Michael McClure. Philip and Michael were both beat poets. And Lou kept telling me, you got to meet Gary, you got to meet Gary. So he invited Gary out to Olima one day to come meet me. And uh, I remember he came out in the brand spanking new uh, Volkswagen 
camper. And I thought, how bougie. And uh, he parked it. He opened the door and I kind of climbed in and he put some peanut butter on crackers. And we sat there talking a little bit. And he just kept looking at me like he was trying to figure out who is this guy. I mean, I had very long hair down to the middle of my back. I had six earrings. Um, I was the place we were in was obviously impoverished, hard scrabble farm. And um, he seemed unimpressed by my uh, radical political bona fides. He just kept looking at me like, who is this guy? And I found that look to be very, very unsettling. And when he left, I thought, I, I got to see what this guy's about. I got to do this. And then also when I was reading about the beats, I was reading about Zen. And Gary Snyder seemed like the best authoritative source. He'd lived in Japan for nine years in a Zen temple. He married a Japanese woman. He spoke and read Japanese and Chinese. So I started going up to his farm. And because I grew up on a farm, I was a good worker, and I'd help him cut brush and cut timber. And we just began what amounted to 20 years of long uh, uh I've forgotten the word I want, but long conversations that just were kind of boundaryless, that would go everywhere from Asian culture to the various varieties of Buddhism to the way to do controlled burnings in the forest. Um, and everywhere I looked at Gary's place, uh, his life was not flashy, not wealthy, but completely, perfectly thought out and appropriate. And I realized that he was the first person I'd ever met who did not appear to me to be unevenly developed. Like I was unevenly developed. I was really smart in some areas and completely hopeless in another. I mean, I could rebuild an automobile engine, but I couldn't cut a board so that it would be the right dimension. I had a lot of anger. I had a lot of envy. I had a lot of all sorts of undeveloped parts. But Gary did everything the way he did the thing that was most important to him. In other words, he sat Zazen. He treated his family with the same care. He treated his kids with the same care. He treated his land with the same care, his community, his political life. And over time, after knowing him, you know, a number of years, I thought, this Zen stuff, this is, this is his, the source of his wisdom. And so around 1974, the counterculture had come a crapper. Things had fallen apart. I was a single father. My daughter's mother had run away. And I started sitting Zazen at San Francisco Zen Center in an effort to kind of uh, give some ballast to my life and kind of fulfill what I felt to be a potential that was just being spilled onto the ground. As I recall, many of the uh, other well-known uh, people from the Beat Generation took an interest in Zen and in Buddhism, but I think very few of them managed to really s succeed with it. They, they sort of dropped out along the way. It's a very strict practice. So Philip Whalen did. Philip Whalen became a transmitted teacher like me became a priest and then transmitted means your teacher transmits his authority to you and you can now ordain your own priests if you want to. Michael McClure was a serious uh, Buddhist. 
I just read the Heart Sutra at his memorial ceremony last month. Um, yeah, Zen is a rigorous practice. It's like, you know, you get up, you sit Zazen every day. You are moderating yourself to make sure that the shadow sides of human beings don't escape because you're unconscious of them. You know, we like to think of ourselves as the good guys, but we're not. We're human beings. And human beings are like radios that are tuned to the human spectrum. And anything that can blow through any human being can blow through you. It could be Mother Teresa. It could be Adolf Hitler. It could be Donald Trump. It could be Martin Luther King Jr. And if you don't know that, if you think that you're the good guys, it means you've stopped investigating and taking responsibility for what you do so that you wind up, let's say, dropping bombs on hotels in Baghdad in the middle of the night, killing men, women and children in their beds because you don't like the leader of the country. That ain't good guys. That's unconscious guys. So Zen really asks a lot of you and it makes you your own policeman. Because your inner nature is what Buddha is. Your innate wisdom is Buddha. And when you meditate long enough, your kind of personality becomes semi-permeable, kind of like a colander. And what pierces it and what comes through it is the entire universe. And that's what you want to be in touch with. So when you're going to do something, you think to yourself, well, is this right speech? Is this right employment? Is this a right use of my energy? So I see why a lot of people drop out. You had a lot of difficulty with it, with it yourself, especially, I gather, at the time you, you began Zen practice, you were still using heroin. Yeah, I was, uh, well, I think I had stopped pretty much by the time I got the Zen Center. But I was really like a junkyard dog. And I had spent, you know, eight years of unrestrained freedom, living from impulse to impulse, doing whatever I wanted. My idea of freedom, you know, four women in the bed, whatever I could think of. Um, and I got this in center and all of a sudden it was like this restrictive place. Everybody was somber. Everybody held their hands like this. They showed no emotion. They were, you know, you never had to raise your voice in a room with 100 people in it. Everybody was so disciplined. And I was like uh, this tangled up ball of barbed wire. And I just bridled against it. I said, I thought I was just there for a little finishing on my enlightenment. And um, <laughs> I was just a disaster. And after a while, I began to appreciate the discipline and the forms and the limitations and learning to find freedom within them. And I got healthy and I got stronger and I got calmer. And, uh, you know, that was 47 or 48 years ago, so I'm still going. I imagine that part of your difficulty had something to do with the dysfunctional relationship you had with your parents. My childhood was not happy at home. Uh, my mom had suffered a crippling nervous breakdown when I was two and a half. And I was basically put under the tutelage of this remarkable 17-year-old black girl named Susie Howard, from North Carolina, who'd been my aunt, my father's sister's housekeeper. And she came to live in our house and basically took it over. My mom was an eggplant. My dad was out all day making money. 
And this was a sunny, brilliant, courageous, fearless woman. And both my sister and I just transferred our loyalties to her. So for 14 years, I was kind of raised by a black community. My kitchen was always full of black people. I'd hear them arguing about the Bible or arguing about white people or talking about prejudice. And I could see when I went out with my black mom how they treated us in the same stores where they treated us very differently when I was with my white mom. So really, I didn't get intimate with my poor mom, my poor biological mother, until I was in my mid-30s. Because I was angry at her because she never protected me from my dad and she forced me to take care of my dad, um, you know, to watch out for his feelings at the expense of my own. And so basically most of most of what I learned in my adolescence up till I was 14 or so was from black people. And uh, I stayed close to Sue. I buried her two years ago. She was in her 90s. And at her funeral, she wrote her own obituary and the preacher read the obituary and she claimed two children. One was her biological son and the other was me. So I've got all these relatives in Vance County, North Carolina, you know, that like <laughs> she would take me out to restaurants and she'd like to mess with the waitress. You know, she'd say, I want you to meet my son and just watch these white girls, you know, try to puzzle it up. So. Yeah, I had a lot of problems from my parents, but I also learned a lot from them. Um, my dad was pretty mean to my mom, and it gave me a uh, an anger at bullies and a respect to try to protect the underdog, which I tried to do with, with her. And then there were many, many areas in which my dad was completely admirable, and I loved and respected him. I just couldn't seem able to get his attention. I couldn't compete with the interests of business. So I went as far, you could, you pointed out that I went from a multimillionaire's house to living free because he had never taught me anything about money. I would ask him how much something costs. He'd say a dollar. I'd say your Cadillac. He'd say yeah, a dollar. You don't need to worry about money. You're going to be a professor at Harvard and I'm going to give you enough money so you can still get your shirts and your suits made and buy good fly rods. And I thought, okay, because I didn't know anything about making money. Made me quit all my jobs in high school. Um, your job is being a student. So, and I had to ask him for money. So money was a big issue to me. So what could be better than being a digger where you didn't have to worry about money? And then he died 20 million below broke, lost everything, made a one bad mistake. And nobody knew it. He lived another 10 years. Everything looked pretty normal. My sister and I had to sign some papers and stuff, which basically gave away all of our inheritance in terms of farms and lands and stuff to be mortgaged to try to keep going. And when he died, my mom had people tugging her over his coffin saying, Ruthie, we want our money. She, you know, she was blown away. She was in her mid 50s and had to sell three homes and move into a tiny little apartment on the other side of the tracks and felt terrible that she'd been living on other people's money all this year, all these years. Um, so I didn't get to teach at Harvard. I didn't get a, an income. I got a belt and a fountain pen. And as a matter of fact, <laughs> this is, is the fountain pen. This is my dad's Mont Blanc diplomat 
and a turquoise belt and a lot of smarts and a lot of, you know, stuff that he taught me. But um, that was not why Zen was difficult. Zen was difficult because my mind was unruly. And I was had trained myself for eight years to follow every impulse that I had. And so I was like a Mexican jumping bean. And to just sit there with my life and witness and experience all the toxins and all the anxieties and fears and all the rages that I had, you know, been keeping tranquilized with heroin or diverting by living in this interesting, complex, hippie, free love life. Uh, that was really hard coming face to face with who I had become. Well, I think it's worth mentioning that after your digger phase, you actually got very much involved in the mainstream. Of course, our viewers know that you've had a very successful career in Hollywood, but even prior to that, you were working with uh, Governor Jerry Brown in the state of California as the head of the California Arts Commission. Yeah, that's a worthwhile story. I mean, so in 1975, Gary Snyder won the Pulitzer Prize for his book of poems called Turtle Island. And Jerry reached out to him and asked him to remake the California State Arts Council and make it with all working artists. And so Gary asked me to join him and help him. And it turned out that I had a knack for it. I had a knack for talking to people. I had a knack for public policy and explaining it in really clear, simple terms. And although I made some... Uh, early mistakes by being hot-tempered and bad-mouthed and intolerant. Um, Gary and I did go to Jerry Brown at one point and say, listen, we're having all this storm and drong over a million-dollar budget. Why don't you put a $20 million budget request in your budget request for us, and we won't ask you to lift a finger for it. If we can't win it, we don't deserve it. And so Jerry did that. And so then I was able to go around to all the players. And in a lot of cases, I had to eat crow. I had to apologize for having insulted them and demeaned them and being angry at them because I had a chip on my shoulder as an unrecognized artist. I could go to New York and win an Obie, but I couldn't come home to California and qualify for any of the art grants in San Francisco. So I did that. And we got together the year that Proposition 13 passed, 1976, and every state agency was held to a 10% uh, cut. And that year, my budget went up from one to five million. And then it went up every year until with federal money, it was somewhere around 18 million. And it was because of my success in that, that I realized that I didn't have to remain a hipster in the counterculture. I had learned how to talk to conservative legislatures, made friends with them. They brought them to help me. Uh, even if they had the vote against me on the record, they would ensure that my budgets went through. Uh, I, was, <laughs> I was such a brat that the state legislature passed a law and said I couldn't have a fourth term. So that's, that's how cranky I was. But it gave me the confidence to realize what I could do. And so I thought, I'm going to try the movies. I had no money. I was working as a $600 a month CETA artist. 
a comprehensive education and training act artist. And uh, the arts council was not salaried. And yet not only was I the chairman, but at a certain point I fired the executive director and I ran the arts council with a troika of my deputy and a woman I borrowed from finance to get it on a good keel. So I gave myself five years to try the movies and said, well, if I don't get it, uh, I can do something else. I won't be very old and I won't die with the what ifs. And to be honest, I got lucky. I got my SAG card when I was 39, which is kind of late to begin. And so I had about a 10-year run from up to around 50 as a leading man. And then, you know, even Robert Redford, once he's over, over 50, he starts doing films with the next generation's child star. And so then I had a lot of character parts, but they stopped being as interesting. And in fairness, I knew I was not Daniel Day-Lewis or Sean Penn or Meryl Streep. as was not my gift. My gift was being a writer. And I was basically thinking, well, I'm making a good living here and I don't have to write for money. I don't have to write for shit that I'm not interested in. And so, you know, acting was very good to me. I bought two houses for two wives. I paid uh, probably a total of 25 or 30 years of alimony. I'm still paying alimony until I'm 82. I got both my kids through graduate school debt free and I became, I did films all over the world, did films in French and Spanish. And, you know, it's better than the sharp stick in the eye. Uh, so I don't begrudge it. I just knew that I was never going to achieve, you know, the, the, the optimal status and recognition as an actor. So at a certain point when my kids were out of grad school, I just let that go by and I only do voiceovers now. Well, I think much more interesting than your acting career, fascinating as it is, is is your work in Zen Buddhism and the fact that you became an ordained Zen priest. And uh, one of the features of, of Zen that many people focus on is the idea of enlightenment or satori. And uh, you've written about that in a very interesting way about how important it is on the one hand and how unimportant it is on the other. Here's the problem. Anything that you name as a word, you tend to reify and think of as a thing. You know, if I say, uh, if I say scissors, I associate it with an object. And after a while, the same thing happens for ideas like liberal or conservative People are using them completely different, differently, but you think of them as real things. And that's certainly true of our self. Yes, we have a self-awareness, but there's no self inside us that corresponds to an organ. There's no little homunculus behind my forehead that's doing my seeing and my hearing and my thinking. I would forget to keep my heart beating. I would forget to breathe. So... While we have this awareness as an isolated object, we don't have a self in the way we think we do. And that's only half the equation. The other half of the equation is I wouldn't exist without oxygen, without sunlight, without water, 
without microbes in the soil growing my plants, without pollinating insects, without birds to control the pests, without people growing the cotton, harvesting the cotton, spinning the cotton, sewing the cloth, shipping the clothes. So when you really look at the world, you can see we're part of one great big organism and that nothing exists in exactly the way we think we do. So, yes, there is such a thing as an enlightenment experience. Um, it's usually of short duration. Uh, I'll tell you what it isn't. It isn't a fence that you climb over and on the other side of it, your life is, is grinding out bliss and good fortune and cotton candy and rice pudding. Um, and it's sort of a misguided thing to think about. If you imagine yourself seeking enlightenment, you're actually imagining a self and you're imagining enlightenment. And the two of them are never together. What Buddha said is that our own inner nature is enlightened. All human nature is originally enlightened, but it's obscured. And it's obscured by dark feelings that we call kleshas, anger, greed, delusion, envy. All of these things can, can fog our initial clarity. So enlightenment, you can't live in an enlightened condition in the world of form. You can have a breakthrough and suddenly see things outside of your personality. Mostly we see everything through our personality. And the personality or our ego only has three options. You like something, you dislike it, or you're neutral about it. But the actual universe, what Suzuki Roshi, the founder of Zen Center, used to call things as it is. And it's not a mistake to say it, because it's a singularity. Things as it is. So the emptiness of the universe, the pregnant energy, continually generates forms solar systems, people, butterflies, species of grass. My favorite image is a choppy ocean, an ocean with lots of little individuated waves. Every one of those waves could be a named object in the universe, could be an animal, could be a person, could be a species, could be a concept, but they arise out of the formlessness of the ocean. They take shape for a while and when they take that shape, we say they're living and they settle back into the formlessness of the ocean. We call that dead. But what we forget and what those little waves forget is that they've never not been part of the ocean. Never, ever. And neither have we. And that's the part that we forget when we look at the world only through our ego. So the reason that you can say that Buddhists, uh, Buddhists are not afraid of dying is because if you say who dies, you have to say who lives and you can't actually say who lives. And so what emptiness means is that everything is made up of other things. So you can take an apple apart to the skin, the meat, the seeds, you can split the seeds, you can take it all the way down to the molecular level, you'll never find the germ of appleness. 
and you can take Jeff Mishlove down past the tendons and the bone marrow and the, you'll never find the germ of Jeff Mishlove. You are a temporary, unrepeatable experience that is also an expression of the entire universe, the formless pregnant energy of the universe. So enlightenment is a deep, startling glimpse of that. Maybe it's five or 10 minutes. And then what happens is you come back and you kind of remember that. It's like seeing part of the moon obscured by clouds. If you see just a little edge of the moon, you still understand the roundness of the entire moon behind the clouds. So when you've had a Kensho experience or something like that, you look at a leaf and you see the entire universe. You can remember that. And so you have that as an option to switch from the solely singular point of view to the holistic point of view. Neither one is salvational. Each one has shadow sides and flaws. You know, Stalin and Mao Zedong and Pol Pot, they killed hundreds of millions of people looking for the big picture. The big picture tends to undervalue an individual expression of the universe. They say, well, what's a salamander to building a shopping center? You know, so there's an endangered salamander here. So what? What's a what's a endangered butterfly next to, you know, building a hospital for humans? Well, maybe you'd build it differently if you considered them. Maybe you'd build it in a slightly different place. But the holistic is not a, a fail, a foolproof a refuge from the the prejudices and follies of the singular. So, yeah, I mean, I studied, I did have such an experience, but then you have to come back to your everyday life. And the truth of it is, if you're not kind, if you're not helpful, if you're not compassionate, who cares what kind of spiritual experience you had? The whole point of it is to change the way you behave in the world. And that's what Buddha was really trying to do. Buddha was trying to enlist an army of people to save the world. It was a huge vision. And they did it first and foremost by clarifying themselves and their intention and then going out to see how they could be helpful. So we don't become Buddhists to become teachers and sit up there on the, on the throne and talk to the little people. We don't become Buddhists to build big temples or even to make other people Buddhists. Buddha is our own inner nature. Buddha is not a god. He was a human being. And we worship his knowledge. We don't worship the man. So enlightenment is, uh, while it was a goad to me and, you know, I was really curious about it. It's what I thought about a lot. It also has a downside because if you live the way Buddha prescribed, he, he gave the world four noble truths. The first noble truth was dukkha. It means affliction. And it means there's like pepper in the wind that blows into every living thing. We're all afflicted by shit that happens. The second, and he calls it a noble truth. So truth means real, first and foremost. It's not a fiction. You're not suffering from these things because you're spiritually undeveloped. And he calls it noble to remind you that it is worthy of dignity and respect because it is the universe producing raw energy and sending it at you. The second one is called samudaya. It means arising. 
It means when shit happens, thoughts arise. The guy cuts you off in a car, you want to give him the finger. It's not your fault. That's an impulse. If you get too hot, you move away from the fire. It's not your fault. It's not spiritually undeveloped. The third noble truth is the only one where you can begin to exert yourself. And that's called niroda. And it means containing. And the image of containment is a, a clay wall built around a fire pit. And any peasant in Buddha's world would have known what that was for. That was to stop the fire from burning down the village. So dukkha and samudaya are just raw energy. But if you spill that raw energy on the ground like gasoline and you lit it, it would do nothing or it would burn down the village. If you put it in the, in the strict container of an automobile engine, it does work. And so what you learn as a Buddhist is that by meditating, you can contain anything. You can feel and understand the insubstantiality and the dependence of thoughts. And you can model for people how to face the afflictions and the rising of the world with dignity. There's nothing dignity about, dignified about being a drunk. There's nothing dignified about fleeing the afflictions, hopping from bed to bed. There's nothing dignified about compulsive shopping or gambling. So a Buddhist says, here's the world. I can face this stiff wind. I can face what arises. And by, by seeing their essential emptiness, I can contain them. And then once they're contained, the last noble truth is called the Eightfold Path. And they're prescriptions for how you live an enlightened life. And it is an enlightened life. You don't have to have Kensho. You ask yourself, is this right livelihood? Is this right speech? Is this the right way to live? Is this the right energy? There's eight things that you review. You ask the Buddha inside you. There's no cop, Buddha cop out there who's ready to humiliate you. There are older friends and teachers who are kind of like uncles who've been out there ahead of us. But Zen people are not very long on gurus. We say, put no head above your own. That the emptiness of the universe contains all contradictions. It's got the questions and the answers of anything. You just have to avail yourself of it. So that was what the Buddha was doing. And the Buddha never said, if you get enlightened, you'll never suffer again. It said he was saved from all suffering. So when you save someone from drowning, you don't get rid of the ocean. When you save someone from suffering, doesn't mean you end all suffering in the world, but you learn how to deal with it. You learn how to contain it, not pass it on, not generate negative karma, negative consequences by acting it out. So that's kind of perhaps an overlong description of basic Buddhism 101. It was a wonderful description. Peter Coyote, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for this conversation. It has been eye-opening on many, many levels. And I'm very pleased to let our viewers know we plan a, a follow-up conversation as well. We haven't even begun to talk about your recent book, The Lone Ranger and Tonto Meet the Buddha. And we will do that in a future conversation. Thank you so much, Jeff. Thank you for being with me. And for those of you 
watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.